Hi everybody, we are on season eight, episode three, and today I have Matt Ram back with me for the first time this season. Hi Matt, how are you doing? Good morning, very, very well. I'm, good, I'm, I'm glad to be back. It feels a bit like um, the kind of the summer break in football, actually, doesn't it? We're you know, <laughs> out for the next season, and I'm, I'm very glad to say, of course, that my beloved football team is already top of the Premiership, but, uh, but, but less of that. Well, I was going to say, I would have absolutely no idea what that team is. Because we know that I don't do the football side. Um, well, I have been enjoying the rugby being on. I'm glad that that's uh, back yes, on again. I've been enjoying uh, that. I, I kind of watched the uh, the England Argentina match with kind of one eye closed, really, because I, particularly after the sending off in the first few minutes, I thought, oh no, here yeah. we go again. But they did really well, so that's good. It was a good start. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, everybody, today we are going to be talking about insurance for expats or people that are potentially spending quite a bit of time abroad each year. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So, Matt, obviously, I know things are very different between whether or not we have somebody who is obviously living completely and is resident abroad. And then we have different options for people who are maybe, I don't know, they're maybe working on contracts that work that take them out of the UK for like half a year or so. Um, but why is it? Cause we only have, we have, we basically have, we have UK insurers and we have international insurers that we would typically potentially reach out to as a UK based advisor. And there's only a couple of, UK insurers that are prepared to consider insuring somebody who is either an expat or they are out of the country and quite a bit. And I think at the moment in my mind, I'm thinking quite a lot along the lines of like the life and kick side of things. IP does bring in that extra dynamic because of like the UK taxpayers and all that kind of thing. This, I was going to say for anybody who's listening, we're not going to go as in depth as what needs to be gone into in terms of things like income protection for somebody in this situation. It becomes very, very complicated, but doable at times. But why is it, Matt, that we do sometimes, why, why do we only have a couple of insurers that are prepared to consider people who are outside of the UK? Okay, it's, 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 it's a very good question. I think, um, just, just to clarify, we, what we're talking about here is is British nationals. Yes. Or at least I'll, I'll be focusing in on British nationals. And um, one of the key points here is whether an insurer has got a license to trade in a, another country. Yeah. So um, particularly one of the, uh, the the big insurers, which one of the two, um, has actually gone out and looked for, uh, uh, gone, gone to other uh, uh, industry bodies in uh, other countries, particularly in Europe um, and the Far East, um, and actually obtained licenses to trade. Yeah. So that's pretty important. A lot of a lot of insurers just I don't think cannot be bothered is the right phrase, but they've commercially they just don't see the markets, the foreign markets as being particularly um profitable for them. Okay. So they don't bother they stay they will really stay in the UK, trade in the UK, or of course, question that I'm sure you will be asked, um, Catherine, bear in mind what you do for a living, is, uh, you know, the, the, what about the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man and things like that? And, of course, the, most insurers, always worth checking, will write business from people um, or uh, entities, corporate entities that are resident in those countries. Um, but effectively, the you know, why can't we do somebody in France? Why can't we do somebody in Belgium? Why can't we do somebody in uh, Italy? It primarily comes because simply there's, there's, they, that insurer does not have license to trade in those areas. And therefore, it's uh, from an underwriting perspective. And what I mean by underwriting in this context is kind of a risk management to uh, effectively uh, look at if there's any extra risk being brought in to the uh, the UK portfolio. If you had um, Belgians, Italians, French, it would make absolutely no difference whatsoever. The, the, the mortality in these countries is very similar to the UK. It might be slightly different shapes, but, and they might be, the, at the end of the day, um, with uh, the Mediterranean countries because of their, their diets, they might do 
better in some um, medical disorders, such as heart attack and things like that, yeah. um, maybe the general UK population. But generally, overall, it's very, very similar. So from an underwriting, a pure underwriting uh, aspect, a lot of these countries are absolutely fine. But it is, and I think when... Uh, IFAs when we scratch their head, sorry, distributors struck their uh, scratch their head and think, well, why on earth, you know, somebody in France, good God. Um, and this is a national of France, I would say. Um, why, why, why can't we do it? And it's the license to trade that, that causes the problem. Um, the key point that I would immediately say is, is the uh, owner of the policy, so we then get into life of another policies, uh, are they uh, resident in the UK? All right. Now, a couple of scenarios there, which, again, some um, distributors might not um, come across, is particularly key person insurance, yeah. whereby uh, as long as the person, sorry, the entity, corporate entity in this case, key person, um, is in the UK and they have employees in the Far East, the US, um, uh, Europe, um, then those can be insured. Okay. Now, we're looking again here at the kind of the, the legal tax situation when I say they can be insured. You then have the overlay of quite where those people are. And I did mention those countries specifically mm -hmm. because they are places whereby we don't see any actual additional risk. Uh, however, if you are looking at somebody, who, a, a company in the UK, which is, now, Russia is not a good example to use at the moment, yes. but let's say in one of the more, um, uh, how can I put it, one of the areas, let's say in the Middle East, which is um, uh, particularly at war still, or um, it, so either externally or internally, so civil war, um, then the underwriter will step in, if you like, and say, sorry, no can do. Yeah. Now, guide there into the, the underwriting view on no can do is to for, for advisors to look at the FCDO, which in my day anyway, <laughs> used to be the Foreign Commonwealth Office. It's now the Foreign yes. Commonwealth and Development um, Office. And uh, it's it'd be good just just to look up, um, look at what the, you know, the, the travel situation is there. And um, if, if they say it is not advisable, then you are likely to get no can do from the insurance community, from the underwriting insurance community. So they're very quick um, to react as well, aren't they, the underwriters? As an example, I mean, um, yes. sort of like obviously when everything happened, I think, you know, I know you said before about Russia, but... Obviously, with everything that happened in Russia and Ukraine, there was a very, very quick reaction to start to be the questions changed in the, um, the protection insurance application, specifically ask, you know, have you been there for a long time in the last few years? Do you intend to go there? Just obviously because of the fact that there is such a, a higher level of conflict there at the moment. But then you can have quite some long standing areas as well. I'm trying to spot somebody at the moment who's due to um, go to Haiti for a week. And um, and the majority of insurers, you know, ninety nine percent are absolutely they just won't even consider it. Yeah, you know, it's just immediate. That is it. So, like you were saying, looking at like I call it the FCO, but the FCDO system, just to give an idea, if you, if it's a country that is outside of like America, Europe, New Zealand, Australia, it's a good idea yeah. just to have a look and go right. Is there anything there? Um, and just see if if you potentially envisage that there's going to be a potential issue when you put the application forward. Uh, I, I totally agree. I mean, certainly when in my reinsurance days, um, we were, um, as part of our job almost, we were um, encouraged to uh, to look at the, the FCO website, FCDO website, and also just the simplest thing is read the newspaper and look at the news. You know, and, and and you know, from a reinsurance perspective, in those days, it was right. Get, get hold, hold, you know, onto the phone in the morning with the insurers and immediately say to them, "I'm afraid X Y Z country is is out for the for the time being," um, and you know, we wouldn't be ex wanting to accept any business from any insurer who um, who d decides they want to write it themselves. 
So, yeah, they do react very, very quickly. And I say it's part of the underwriting remit, really, to to react quickly and keep abreast of the uh, of the situation worldwide. Um, so I, I kind of, um, as I say, was was going to maybe. I hope I haven't confused the listeners with um, the the expat Brit um, and a national there. Yeah. But if it, it, you know, it, the same applies in terms of the underwriting part of this conversation. If you have a um, a, a a Brit living in the Ukraine or Russia at the moment, as examples. Just more recent examples, then they would not get they would not get cover. Um, an interesting one would be a Russian resident in the UK. Mm, that's, that's very very tricky still at the moment. That is a very tricky indeed. Um, or anybody certainly... with potential connection or previous. So even somebody who's been. So we we were trying to spot somebody who, I believe. Um, it was one of Alan's clients, so I, I don't know exactly all of it off the top of my head, but I believe that they were Ukrainian but had worked um, and, and had not lived in Russia at all um, or no. anything like that, but they had been employed by a Russian company for quite a long time um, in the past, and the cover was uh, not available with the majority of insurers because of that connection at the moment to Russia. Yes, I've I've seen um, <clears throat> quite a few would be exaggerating, but a good number of um, uh, of uh, cases that that have have come across that chat. Sorry, that decision. Um, the American reinsurers um, are particularly hot on that particular yes. topic. Um, perhaps not surprisingly. Um, the European ones seemed or were uh, a little bit more, a little bit more open. But it's it's um, quite staggering about how far up the up the insurance food chain those types of decisions go. Um, oh, I can well imagine. And, and, and as a, sorry, I was going to say, as an advisor as well, ideally what you should have is some form of UK sanctions checks um, for your clients. I, ideally, yes. it would be automatically integrated into your system so that you don't yeah. necessarily have to go out and check it all yourself for each client. But if you don't have an automatic system that's doing a UK sanctions check, you should um, you should really you should be doing that on all of your clients and and sometimes I have to say you get really bizarre things where somebody can suddenly flag up as like this person's potentially on a list and it'll be that they're like a mayor in America or something and you know, like, yeah, no, and it's absolutely. just a random name you know sort of like connection and age connection um, and it's absolutely fine. We're just going back to also all the, the side of things in terms of like why insurers maybe do and don't sort of want to insure people outside the UK. Um, so the ones that the UK insurers where they can potentially do it, it is where they feel that, you know, there's maybe a, um, a UK liability. So when we're talking about the UK liabilities, we are talking about uh, mortgages in the UK. We're potentially talking about um, core family in the UK who are dependent upon them. So quite a good example that we have would be um, somebody who is um, working in the Middle East um, or potentially you know, offshore and outside the country quite a bit and they are the main breadwinner, but then they've got a partner and children in the UK. So you know, can potentially look at some family protection there. And when you're calculating things like that as an advisor, you are going to be looking usually at some kinds, maybe some kind of multiples of salary until age of independence or retirement age. Or it might be that you're looking at family income benefits to certain time frames as well. But it's not just that. You can sometimes take into account on top of that. So like if there is children involved, you can go, right, well, actually, if these children were to go to university, we expect it to cost this much over this many years. So we're going to include that in the summer assured. You might even at times want to take into account if um, if a family member is dependent upon the person for like care home fees or different things like that, you might as well, you might want to also include some kind of value in the summer short to cover those ongoing care home fees as well, if anything happens to them. But I, obviously I wondered if sort of like, as you said, so like the mortality and morbidity rates in the majority of countries that people are quite often would um, uh, go to, um, are probably very, very similar to, to the UK. Um, and the ones that aren't are probably the ones where we are probably thinking they'd probably stand out a bit more. And you'd probably think, Maybe oh that's a more of an unusual place to maybe go settle, and um, and that's fine. But 
in in terms of the way that it works as well, though, because I'm I'm sure that with some of them as well, even if we can sometimes do these insurances, like in the UK market, are there certain things sometimes like that you're aware of, like whether some assured my so like if I was insuring an expat for like I don't know five hundred thousand pounds, that that could be potentially acceptable, maybe even at standard rates um, with an insure UK insurer. But if we're starting to go into like I don't know if we're going into millions, so like it's a high net worth clients. Um, we're going into the million side of things. Can we? I'm, I'm sure I've experienced it before, and maybe it's changed now. Where as soon as we hit certain summer shards, it suddenly became like per mil ratings, just purely because of the fact that it was a higher summer shard. Interesting question. In terms to to answer that one directly, um, I have not seen it change on basis of summer short. Um, that's interesting because I've got back in challenge. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm it, it if it's just the sum assured, then I can only I've not seen it. So, from a practical perspective, I've not seen it now. I, then I put my kind of um technical hat on if you want. Yeah, um, then I it wouldn't altogether surprise me that um, when when I think high, when I think high net worth, I tend to think well, maybe the reinsurers get involved in it, right? And it could well be them saying, right, for up to two, three million pounds, um, will uh, follow the normal pra practice of the insurer, but once it becomes, um, you know, falls very much into our domain, then we we were not going to follow that practice. We're gonna we're going to impose our own um, rating, if you want. Yeah loading okay. and that could well be on um on a, a per mil basis um it, it's it whether it's per mil or whether it's a years to age or quite however um it comes across it they, they should be similar but some ins you know some insurers will sorry some reinsurers will, will i can see it happening catherine let me yeah. put it that way. I've not seen it myself, but I can I can understand why there is that mix or can be that that mix. Absolutely. Did you, did you have a particular example that you could think of, or maybe you can remember? With, with that one, it was I can't remember absolutely everything with it. I know it was a higher sum assured, um, and but there was nothing. There was you know there was there wasn't like a a percentage rating for any kind of risk factors or anything it was just i remember being told you know it's like it's it's gone to per mil because of the summer short but right. you know so that was i think quite a while ago so it might right. be that it's changed um yeah. keeping with the kind of thing that we're talking about so i know you've mentioned america there, there are specific treaties in place which basically mean that it's it's really you, you it's not that you can't advise people in north america if you're a uk advisor but you do need to have it. It gets very intense. I don't know if you know anything on your side from it, Matt, but I do know that I, I know firms who do provide advice for people in America, but it gets really, really tricky. There's solicitors involved. You know, there's you have to bring in people. You know, you can't just do it yourself because I think, like you were saying before, it's all to do with potentially permissions. I think it's to do with the way the different financial institutions work. Is that is that your understanding? Yeah, I, I, you're, you're absolutely 100% right. It is a very, very complicated field um, in, in terms of getting the right permissions and getting the right advice. If you have a uh, somebody who has paid, usually UK, US national, obviously, um, but residents in this country, um, it's a complicated field. And again, my understanding of this, and it is 10 years out of date, uh, because I did look at it um, when I was at Aegon uh, in, in terms of the business opportunity. And effectively, the, I suppose you would say the actuaries, the valuation actuaries, the guys who actually do all the nitty gritty of the, of the life insurance funds. Yeah. And reserving, okay, so I'm not talking about investment here, I'm talking about the reserving on the life protection fund. Um, when they consult their tax lawyers, um, it is unclear quite what they have to report uh, or not, okay, in terms of the legal aspects of the fund itself, because obviously the, 
the uh, regulatory the regulations the people that people that kind of govern all this the fca i suppose yeah. um are very interested in how those those the, the reserving is done um and how it's carried out etc cetera, etc cetera. when those actuaries have talked to their lawyers um it is not clear where the reporting of the u.s tax situation comes into when it comes into play on a, on a uk fund yeah that's pretty that sounds pretty complicated because it really is because <laughs> i can assure you so effectively when it's not clear um therefore you know if, if i go back to any kind of risk whether it's a, an aeroplane a house whatever when it's when it's not clear what the risk actually is then the 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 taxation guys the actuaries will err on the side of caution and effectively there is a thought that if um there was a lot of american nationals buying up life insurance policies then the uk fund would have to report that Mm. and those people and the sums assured on an annual basis to the IRS. Oh, right. Therefore, and it's not clear one way or the other where they have to do that, but somebody somewhere has said that, that might be a possibility. Therefore, you know, <laughs> be careful what you wish for type of scenario. Yeah. And most most of the insurers have said, well, we're not going to get into that territory. The, the, the uh, amount of business that we can write is going to be limited anyway yeah. um, because the Americans have a very well-developed market themselves, of course, even if they're over here, um, they can access it as far as I'm aware. Um, then uh, it's, it's just not worth the risk. And therefore, most insurers shy away from American nationals who might be resident over here, but have in the past um, had a U.S. Uh, They've had dealings with their own, you know, the, the the U.S. tax authorities. Yeah. So it's one of those scenarios where there's no absolute black and white answer. Now, I can say that depending on how long the American national has been over here, some insurers and the policy is not huge. And what I mean by huge possibly is in the region of maybe more than five million. Maybe a little bit less, um, but uh, they, they will act. They will provide insurance in yeah. the UK on a, on a US national. I, I have known known them, but not for very big sums assured. And, they, and again, I would say, how long do they have to be over here? And it's a, it's a hit and miss question, or sorry, a very hit and miss answer, sorry, to that question. And, you know, you're probably looking at, at least five to 10 years. Okay. What I would say is that just going back to this, uh, one of the one of the reasons uh, that I see a lot of cases, um, Catherine, you, I don't think you mentioned. Please, please, uh, you can't put your hand up because I can't actually see you. But <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me, say yes, I did mention it. But one of the um, the big areas, certainly over the last ten years, maybe not quite just at the moment, um, is the IHT on yes. uh, the properties in particularly in London. Yeah. Um, where from folk living abroad and certainly there's a lot of interest and a lot of some very high sums assured um, have been accepted in the UK. Um, but again, you just need to be where we or the IFA, the uh, distributor, needs to be very wary of the, uh, of the situation in terms of um, the fact that most insurers can only a right business where the policy owner is in the UK. Mm-hmm. But there are ways around it. Trusts being the absolute classic. Yeah. If there's a UK trust that um, would uh, is tasked with settling that IHT liability, then then that's absolutely fine. Absolutely. That's it, that's, I'm, I'm talking big, big sums assured here, by the way. You yes. know, 50, 100 million type thing. It's insane. That is really insane, isn't it? Especially, I was going to say, if someone's got an IHT liability of 100 million, that is the actual value of their estate to me is just insane. I think, (laughs) yeah, yeah. To be be, be fair, I've, um, how 
Yeah, big, biggest win I've ever done is 148. Oh, wow. That's such a so, brag. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that, was, that was UK IHT liability. So That's incredible. They do, they do happen. And that was, that was a good number of years ago now, by the way. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they, they do come up, I, I have to say. Well, definitely. And obviously there are some advisors who work purely in that space. And then there's times that's, you know, it just kind of, you might just come across it. And I think it's important as well for advisors is that if you are a protection only advisor um, and you are approached by somebody for IHT planning, it is always a good idea to potentially have an IFA to hand that you trust who can maybe give them support if they don't already have one themselves. Um, and if, and if for whatever reason you do speak to somebody, they're wanting IHT planning, they're telling you that they're a, they're a state value and you're like, actually, yes, they really do need IHT planning, but they're, they're not engaging with an IFA. They're not really wanting to go into too much information with you. Um, obviously, speak to your compliance person, but it might be that your compliance says, well, you can't do it without more information or they might say you can do it. But then what you just need to do is make sure you put some disclaimers in, in your recommendation, in your advice to say, you know, as if you're protection only to, or if you're protection and mortgage only or anything like that, to just say, I've done this based upon what you have told me, based upon your calculations. I have advised that you need to speak to a full IFA. Um, I've given you some details of somebody who's really useful in this area, because whilst I have done this based upon your calculations, I cannot confirm that it's going to meet your exact needs. I'm always thinking about the way of having to just be really really careful as an advice firm if you're speaking to somebody with the who needs 148 million like matt has of um ihc cover i think without a shadow of a doubt they will have an ifa um that's not, not an issue but you do still sometimes find that people who maybe do have ihc liabilities and there may be sort of like five million or less um that sometimes they are still just doing it themselves because I think a key thing to remember as well is that with, with quite a lot of people, it doesn't take too much to actually get pushed up into YHT now. So if you've got no. a married couple and they can get some allowance for the main residential property, best case scenario for a married couple, ideally, you know, who isn't engaging with advice and having all that kind of support, their their allowance before IHT is a million pounds. So, and for someone who's single, it'd be um, 500,000 or even cohabiting. That's a big thing to remember as well, cohabiting. We've not got that. We're not merging them together to make the million. It's 500 each. Uh, at the moment, based upon the current rules of when we're recording, which is towards the end of 2023. Um, and, and it's just really important that to think, if you think about like the property values, that especially in, in London area <laughs> or any main city, people can have bought things that were nowhere near, nowhere near IHT value. It, you know, we could be talking, you know, 20, 30 years ago for some people. And they're now suddenly there and they might not even realize it. So you could be speaking to them. So when you do speak to people, again, if you're a mortgage advisor, you'll probably know the value of the property, but make sure if there's any other assets there, if you're protection only, if someone says to you, well, I've got a mortgage of this, you can go ahead, but then maybe just check with them as well. But what's the value of the property? Because, you know, if you're talking something like an equity release mortgage or anything like that, we could be talking, well, for equity release, we need to be doing something anyway, just to really protect um, the estate. But we people can go there and into that higher level without realising. We've got a bit of an off tangent there, haven't we, Matt, in terms of IHT oh, think... stuff like that, but it's, it's really relevant no. in terms of the expats or people who are foreign nationals insuring here. No, no, absolutely. I think, you know, in, in my experience, if you like, the um, the majority of these high net worth individuals do have uh, corporate lawyers engaged or um, uh, specialist accountants, tax yes. people. And it's often those guys, because it's my understanding, particularly legal guys, is that when they are advising themselves on, let's say, IHT, of course, their their focus will be how to mitigate IHT mm. uh, <clears throat> one way or another. Yes. Oh, excuse me. That's <coughs> probably my throat. Um, but one of those parts of that recommendation will nearly always include life insurance yeah. um, to mitigate the IHT liability and Therefore, it's those guys that will often find an IFA for that particular client. Absolutely. Um, so, and I would suggest that even at relatively small sums assured, um, you know, if, if, if somebody's earning 150,000 a year, 200,000 a year, 300,000 a year, then they are likely to have an accountant, which, by the way, can uh, be the, the source that you can use to justify it financially. 
that's really in, interesting. In your recommendation or to the underwriters at the end of the day. It's really interesting because we get we speak to quite a lot of people who are you know 100k plus and they don't have accountants or anything like that. Yeah, no, and it's, I mean, it's, it's so it can be so tricky. And I think it's because as with anything, we've all the client market is so varied. Yeah, it's so yeah. completely varied that and it's and and that's why it's important as well as an advisor to make sure that we have those trusted connections. You know, we talk a lot about signposting to protection specialists. It's essential that we can potentially signpost out as well, whether or not that is mortgages, pensions, investments, cash flow planning, anything like that as to what someone needs. Wills are a really big one as well. The amount of people who don't have wills, especially cohabiting. Oh, so it's making yeah. sure that we say to people, you know, I, I will, I'll say to people, I'm like, I do not do a will. You know, that's not what I do. I don't do lasting powers of attorney either. They're both really, really important. It's not what I do. I can see that there is a need for it. I would really suggest that you speak to this firm. You know, I don't share the client's details with anybody, wouldn't do it that way, but I give the people the information to then do what's right for them and what they feel is right. And I think it's from a consumer duty point of view as well. So this is an extra thing for anybody working in our industry as an advice. When it comes to things like consumer duty, you should have that ability to spot where there's a, in a sense, a bit of a flaw or a hole in the client's planning or their circumstances in terms of the financial security for them, their family, and turn around and go, you know what, this isn't what I do, but these people can. And um, I think sometimes people can be a little bit reserved, or they used to be really reserved of like, oh, well, is this person going to now try and steal my client? Are they going to undo everything I've done? Um, but there is a massive, massive network of people. And when you... I think the majority of people in our industry work for the better good and they work yeah, for the better clients. And as well, they don't want to have bad, rep bad reputations of, you know, doing someone over and doing the clients and all oh, this kind God of thing. No. So, you know, the majority of the time you can build incredible relationships. Okay. I know we've had a really, really good nat here. So, Matt, I'm going to chat to you now about, we've mentioned Russia as an area where at the moment, um, I say we're, we're at September 2023 and um, this podcast will probably going out in October so at the moment Russia will be somewhere where there will be significant difficulty in arranging insurance for somebody um, same potentially for Ukraine at the moment just depends upon the situation um, it depends upon the insurance question sets but most of them will now ask about uh, Ukraine and I mentioned before about Haiti Haiti's one where I say almost all insurers have just been immediate. No, there's just, it's just complete shutdown, not going to happen. Um, are there any other countries that kind of stand out to you, Matt, as sort of like somewhere where maybe even historically there's been issues or I'm not saying that, I'm not saying this is a criticism of the country in the slightest. That's, that's no, no. not the case. Um, but it's just a sort of case of, you know, this is where we have seen conflict quite a bit. So we're seeing it now and it might just need that little bit more research to find something. Yeah, I, you, you touched on some key areas there. I mean, where you, you can actually have parts of countries as well, which insurers won't touch. Yes. Um the, the ones that immediately spring to mind where you're going to find it difficult to place business is Iran, Iraq, Syria. Um, you're going to find uh, Yemen. Um, these places I don't think will be of any surprise, I hope, to, um, uh, to anybody listening. Mm -hmm. um, certainly Haiti, you've mentioned. Uh, you're not going to get cover really in um, the eastern side of Africa. There's yeah. just too 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 much of what we as in well certainly in my reinsurance days were called riot and civil commotion, yeah. <laughs> which I shouldn't laugh to be perfectly honest because they're quite they're very very nasty. But you only yes. have to have a look at some places in Somalia. Um, if you look at the um, some of the countries in Central Africa that are being run by effectively mercenaries from foreign countries, yeah. then you're just not going to get cover there. Um, you. Some of the South American countries, you're going to get, you're going to find it pretty damn difficult. Um, I would say that if you're looking, nipping back right over the ocean and going back to Middle East again, then uh, you're going to find it probably difficult. And this this one always kind of uh, it brings it home to me, really. Um, areas on the, the the fact the, the southern border of Turkey, which is with Kurdistan. Yeah. You're going to find it difficult there. 
uh, cases I've been involved with fairly recently, um, the insurers, obviously with the, with the reinsurers in the background, um, are not great. They're not that keen on on Israel. Okay. Parts of Israel. Therefore, the questions that I, I asked um, uh, is, is exactly where in Israel I was the person going to travel to. Yes. You then get into, now I'm not entirely sure how many insurers actually take into account, but as a risk manager myself, um, there's always a difference between um, somebody going um, somewhere for the first time and not really understanding so this is travel oh. as opposed to more residency, not really understanding the terrain as to say somebody who is now resident in the UK, but going back to a um, a, a country which has problems, not necessarily. Yeah. Like family visits problems, going on, going because, on because the, But it's because they know, but they, they should be less of a risk because they will know where yeah. not to go. <laughs> if no, you know absolutely. what I mean, uh, as will the family tell them if it's, things have changed, do not go there or do not go, you know, here. It's 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 a it's a bit of a it's a minefield. Um, you know, yeah. you you go to New York or Los Angeles, and the hotel says don't go right. Yeah, you know, because you you know you're going to you could well be mugged or something like that. It's oh. um it's it's quite a difficult field. It has to be said, but yeah, um. I was going to say another thing just to, to add to people though, you said about the questions and that about the locations, because quite a few of the places that you have mentioned are places that we've insured people. Yeah, um, yeah. And it does, you know, it can often come down to location, but what can be really useful as well is to say to people when, when it's like that, because often it can be in certain countries, it can be due with like private security, um, offshore yeah. workers, things like that. And what we're going to be doing is saying things like, so so where is it that you land, you know, and really specifically, sometimes it'll be a case of, are you on a military base? Are you in a specific private security compound when you're staying there? Um, how do you travel from, if you're, if you're getting there by plane, how do you travel from the plane to wherever you're going? You know, sometimes it can be, is it armored vehicles? Are you going straight to the, if it's like an offshore person, are you going straight to the rig or to the boat? Uh, things like that um and um and yeah it's there's, there's a lot a lot of questions to ask and things like that and obviously I have to say that um in terms of establishing if somebody if we really need to consider somebody as an expat or outside quite a lot it does tend to come down to obviously the amount of days outside of the country depending upon the issue yeah. questions but you know they are going to be asking things like do you have a uk gp are you sometimes on some of them you know if they're not a uk taxpayer that can sometimes really really complicate things as well because then that does start to question well if you're not paying tax here are you resident here sometimes um maybe even sort of like the currency that they're paid in can sometimes come into it so it, there is a lot a lot of things to know um, when we're looking at this kind of stuff um matt how would it change so i think with life and critical illness cover i think we're probably quite standard in a sense of if we are if we're going abroad, then that's they're probably, especially in like the, the the areas that we're talking about. So like North America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, they're not going to be seen as like huge concerns on the life and critical illness side of things. But income protection is uh, treated differently, isn't it? Yes, very much so. The um, the, the the key challenge um, on on the uh, there, I think there are there are two elements to this because there's there's one from uk people who have bought policies whilst built in the uk and then yes. go abroad um the claims assessors throughout the industry have often found that it's been very difficult to manage the claim yes i can imagine so you have the you have the initial reason for the claim um that, that generally can be sorted out um, but the ongoing handling of the claim is often the most difficult part. And from that, um, most insurers have therefore put in their policy conditions, uh, if, if not all, I'm talking mainstream here, um, will actually say, OK, in the event of a claim, we'll definitely pay for the first, let's say, 26 weeks. But after that, we may, we'll, we will reconsider so the, the the their point being that if you want to continue, sometimes sometimes they will turn around and say, well, if you want to continue your claim, you have to come back to the UK, so we can manage the claim properly. 
If not, yes. they may they may terminate the claim, and that's an essential. That is a, a kind of inbuilt into most policy conditions these days for income protection. And that that it sounds it can sound a bit hard to be honest with you, but that is because that's practical experience as opposed to well, it may happen, it may be difficult, or it might not be difficult. It's practical experience of trying to manage ongoing claims abroad has proven that it's so so difficult that it's not a risk that is acceptable to uh, income protection providers. Does that answer your question okay? Yeah, I think it does. And I think, you know, a key thing, so again, like whenever we're advising people, um, and it, it tends to be me or Alan that tends to do more like the, the stuff abroad, but just because there's so many aspects to it and, you know, you can potentially go wrong is, you know, a really key thing is sort of that we would say is that, well, why aren't you setting, you know, obviously if, if it's somebody brand new who doesn't have, um, income protection in place already and um, so I, I'm saying that somebody who's you know potentially you know going wanting to go abroad and, and, and is already abroad and wanting things like income protection all the life or critical illness we always start with saying to them so why aren't you insuring yourself there yeah yeah um, key, you know, that's key, got, key question exactly yeah. it's like why not if you're planning you now live in Germany you have no intention of coming back you plan to to retire there live the rest of your life there as an example, you know, why wouldn't you yep. do a German policy rather than a UK one? And there can be a number of different reasons as to about that. You know, it can be that you sometimes have people who go, well, look, I do live here and I understand, you know, German very well, but I don't understand it enough to feel completely confident. Or it can be that there's some UK liabilities, you know, um, it can be what we would tend to do is say to people, have you spoken to an advisor there? Yep. And, you know, try to get some advice there. And you get a mixture of responses. But again, you would just work with what your compliance says is OK or potentially not OK for you to do. And it's really, really important to, as with anything, to kind of have a list or a check sheet somewhere to go. Right. Somebody's outside the UK. They're wanting us to help the cover. Can I satisfy, satisfy this? And I know tick boxes and like computer says no is never great. But we are talking about very technical situations here in terms of the taxation. And and I don't think I actually mentioned this before. Did I go into the trust before, Matt? Did I say anything? No, I, I think I mentioned it in the context yeah. of IHD. But, uh, Absolutely. No, you, you, you fire away. Yes, yeah, so you, you do need to be careful as well if you're doing trust for people, if they're going to be outside the UK. But also, if somebody is in the UK, wanting UK insurance, everything's absolutely as you planned it. And you get to doing the trust and they suddenly go, oh, well, my sibling actually lives in America. And I want them to be a trustee um, or potentially even a beneficiary. Any of those situations where the trustee or beneficiary is outside of the UK, you just need to be, again, on top of it because you need to say to the person, well, okay, I can I can do this in a sense. Because if you speak to the insurers, the insurers will usually say to you they need to get legal advice. And that's yeah. what you're going to say as well. You're just going to say you are going to need to get legal advice because essentially this money is going to be moving outside of UK, um, the UK finance sector and banking system is going to be going into your country. And you're going to say, I don't know. I'm not a specialist. I do not know how what's going to happen in terms of the value of that policy and what it will look like once it's gone out of the UK system. So just make sure you've got that kind of um, understanding and statement yourself. So I've got some case studies, Matt. Do we have much? Do we have much time, or have yeah, I? Uh, go, go, go I was just going to say, I, I, I talking about policies going outside this country. I had a very interesting case. Mm. Um, ultimately, I don't think it was ever resolved the the, the, the question. But this was a case where um, a chap had a client. Sorry, should uh, British national. Mm gone to Australia for, I don't know, three or four or five years uh, in his early career, had bought an Australian income protection policy and had come back to the UK, wanted to add a UK policy to the Australian one. Okay. And the Australian one had various policy condi conditions in it that actually um, effectively meant that if the UK policy was put in force, then the, the other one, um, there was a good chance that it had to be cancelled. Oh. And this wasn't, this wasn't getting over the 75, you know, the limitation of benefit oh. issue. It was um, it was quite an interesting scenario. I, I must admit, I don't think the um, the IFA ultimately got to the bottom of it. But um, it, so it's an interesting one when, you, when you've got, a, as yeah. I say, you've actually got uh, overseas income protection policies actually coming back into the UK. Absolutely. <laughs> how does how yeah. does how does that work? 
um, NHS system which collates all of the records on that individual, that doesn't exist overseas. So a, G, a doctor, let's rather we can be. I mean, it can be a general physician um, can certainly have records of an individual, but if that individual has gone elsewhere, then there is no central place to ensure that you can get all you can see all of the records, and therefore insurers, uh, as Catherine has alluded to, um, will certainly get medical examinations. Um, but that's not to say that they won't ask the individual, usually up front um, by the by the uh, distributor, um, whether the, the name of their doctor. They will often have a doctor. Whether that doctor has all the records or not is another point. And of course, when you're getting to the very big sums assured, then um, that doctor will often be contacted for the records that they have. And believe me, because I've seen them, some of them, you know, are quite extensive. Um, but we just have to be wary as risk, you know, as risk managers that it's not necessarily all of the records on that individual. Generally, in the UK, uh, they are they are held centrally. Although these days, with the the kind of uh, the the private doctors that are used, uh, people just walking off the street into a clinic, um, et cetera, et cetera, the maybe even the UK ones aren't as concise as they used to be. Um, I, I hope that adds a little bit, Catherine. Yeah, no, it does. Just it's saying that you've got you, there's a bit of a mix and match in terms of the medical examinations. And I just wanted to clarify the um, why exams there, yeah. tend to be more important than maybe they are in the UK, purely <laughs> because we haven't got the history. We can't necessarily be sure that we have the history. Definitely. And it's and it can prove a real issue, you know, at times yeah, when, you, when you don't have that medical there's holes in the medical history that's you know, some insurers just go, we just can't, you know, because we just can't see enough there. So so it's a very, very a good point to bring up. So well, thank you very much. So thank you, Matt. This has been a really, really good episode. Thank you everybody for, for listening. It's been uh, lovely to have you back with us, Matt. And um, as always, everybody, if you would like your CPD certificate, please visit the website practical-protection.co.uk and uh, you get our CPD because we are sponsored by Opta members, which is a, is a great thing to be a part of. So thank you, everybody, and I will speak to you soon. Take Bye. care. Bye. Bye.